to the book of Jonah, that small book, perhaps only four pages in your Bible, Jonah chapter 4, and we're looking at verses 4 to 11, we're spending some time pulling apart this last chapter because as we said a few weeks ago, the last chapter of this story really brings it all together. If we miss what is here for us in this last chapter, then we miss the whole message of Jonah that God is seeking to speak to us. So verses 4 to 11 of chapter 4. The Lord replied to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about this? Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under as he waited to see what would happen to the city. And the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there. And soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. But God also arranged for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry because the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh, has more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals. Shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? So we've been studying here in these last few weeks the character of God's compassion. The character of God's compassion. What does God's compassion look like? What is it composed of? He is the God who is patient. It is true that God will not leave the guilty unpunished. But it is also true that He is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, according to Exodus 34. God is for His creation. And his anger is always constrained by his compassion and grace. And this is why the world continues on its way at all. For the psalmist asks, Lord, if you kept a record of our sins, who, O oh Lord, could ever survive? If you kept a record of our sins, who could survive? All human beings, beloved, are morally compromised. As Lily said a moment ago, we all wrestle with sin. 
And if God's anger were not constrained by anything else, every human being would have a big problem. But as the psalmist continues in Psalm 130, verse 3 and 4, if you kept a record of our sins, O Lord, who could ever survive but you offer forgiveness that we might learn to fear you. Hallelujah. So as we've been learning, it is this very reality that God's anger is slow. And that becomes a sore point as we're seeing here in our story of Jonah as we journey with him. That becomes a sore point for the prophet Jonah when he is sent to announce God's judgment to Israel's hated enemies, the Assyrians. God is compassionate, but Jonah is not. God is slow to anger, but Jonah is quick. He is the God who weeps, as we looked at last week, out of His chosen love and attachment for us. The raging storm that Jonah faces in chapter 1 can be seen as a picture of God's weeping heart. For God, Yahweh, this is an overflow, not of arbitrary whim or impulsiveness, but of His eternally consistent nature. In the beauty of His holiness, He is gracious, compassionate, The God whose primary desire toward His people is to win them back to Himself. Like a loving parent, God's love is life-giving. It is creative, not destructive. It is an instructive love that teaches a child to become a better person and to strive for the common good of all. It's a tolerant and patient love that allows a child to make mistakes and accepts that child back in forgiveness. It is an unconditional love in spite of the child's rebelliousness. Beloved, this is His love for you and strays too far off the restore a wayward child to wholeness. God is the loving, roaring lion, finding, bringing, and returning His children home, according to Hosea, a contemporary of Jonah's. As young lions called back to the lair, He brings them home, and like birds returning to their roost. We don't find God. God finds us. He pursues us. He has initiated this. The love that we are privileged to share with Him was a love that He initiated. We love because He loved first. God finds us. God goes looking for us long before, an eternity before we look for Him. 
God reveals His glory in all creation. All created beings. This, it's a derivative glory. That is, it's not a glory that is inherent in nature or in human nature, in us. It's a glory that God has given. He has given it. And of course, the ultimate expression of this divine pursuit and of His glory is in none other than Jesus Christ. The chosen one. King Jesus is God. He is the full manifestation and incarnation of God's glory. God absolutely refuses to be hidden away in insignificance, ignored by His creation. It's as if He were looking for Himself, if you will, for the lost reflection of His own beauty and His own glory, His own image in what He has made. That is, in you, in me. We have been made in His image. And so we find ourselves loved and found by the One who knew and loved us long before all others. Indeed, long before we could love ourselves. For we are shaped and formed by the hands of God. We are held long before we can hold on. We are loved long before we even know how to love. Like Jonah, even when we run, from our calling, our vocation, our purpose, we most often just end up eventually running right into it again. Right into God. Where can I go from your presence? Said David. Psalm 139. So the problem then with me that is most threatening to me or with any other fearful and self-protecting human individual is not a matter of somehow crossing the huge divide that we think separates us from God, but rather it is dealing with the interior barriers and boundaries that we ourselves erect Bizarrely, against what is actually most immediate to us. What is, in St. Augustine's words, more intimate to me than I am to myself, he said. Or as Eddie Hillisum puts it, she says, there is a really deep well inside me, and in it, dwells God. Sometimes I am there too. But more often, stones and grit and rubbish block the well. And God is buried beneath. Then He must be dug out again. What an evocative metaphor she gives us. Expressing the tension 
that we feel in our spiritual quest. On the one hand, God is not the end product of spiritual attainment, something brought closer through our own efforts. The deep well of divinity is already present within us. God has placed it there, more intimate to me than I am to myself. We don't have to go somewhere else to find it. We simply must tune in and go deep and pay heightened attention to the presence we often miss. So, it is not that I have or you have a long external journey to undertake in order to get to God. But it's that I have a long internal journey to my own reality that can only be found and, re- and is residing in His love as His beloved. It is my heart, the center or source of my own being that is furthest away from my surface mind and feelings. So, then pilgrimage as a Christ follower, we are pilgrims as the children of God, and as a Christ follower, our pilgrimage is always an interior traveling of self-discovery and Christ-likeness as we walk with Jesus. It is a long obedience in the same direction, inward, Away from the surface superficialities of my life. Like an onion, the Holy Spirit seeks to peel back the layers that I have constructed in my life that keep me from intimacy with Him in that hidden well deep within. Inward, away from the veneer of my life. That defensive, self-protective set of barriers and boundaries that I have set up toward living where spirit meets spirit. Where I am already the beloved of God. As I put it to you last week, we are on a journey of becoming who we already are in Him. What a paradox, what a tension, what a, what a mystery. And it is a difficult journey, isn't it? It's a difficult journey. Because, why? Because it involves things like relinquishing control. That's a hard one. We like to have control. But this journey involves relinquishing that control. It's a journey that involves trusting abandonment to Him. Vulnerability with Him. But it's a necessary journey, loved ones. 
So this then is one of the good news messages that is laced within the story of Jonah. And the more that I, the more that we learn of God, the more that we learn of ourselves, of who we are, and who we are created and meant to be in God. So in the character of compassion, we see the God who is generous. Beloved, God's compassion is not something abstract. But it is very concrete. It plays out not just in his attitude, but in his actions toward human beings. It is intriguing. Think about this with me. It's intriguing that he speaks of these violent, sinful pagans in Nineveh as people living in spiritual darkness And he uses this figure of speech in verse 11. People who do not know their right hand from their left. That is an exceedingly generous way to look at Nineveh. It's a figure of speech that means they are spiritually blind. They have lost their way, confused and helpless, weary and scattered like sheep without a shepherd. As Matthew puts it in chapter 9. And they haven't the first clue as to the source of their problems or what to do about them. Obviously, God's threatening notice that Nineveh will be overthrown shows that this blindness and this ignorance is ultimately no excuse for their evil that they have done. But it shows a remarkable sympathy and understanding and compassion on God's part. God is able to fully immerse himself into the human condition. This is true compassion. What it means to truly be compassionate. There are many people that you and I know and interact with and relate to on a day-to-day basis. Many people, your neighbors and mine, who have no idea what they should be living for. They're pursuing various things, but really in their heart, they have no solid idea of what they should be living for. Or the meaning and purpose of their lives. Nor have they any guide to show them right from wrong. To put it in the figure of speech that, that, that is used here, they don't know their right hand from their left. But they didn't, they, our neighbors don't know their right hand from their left. Just as the Ninevites are described by God. But, but here's the thing, watch this. 
God does not look at them with contempt. And nor should we. God does not look at them with disgust. He understands that they are just living within the framework of of all that they know. How else are they going to live? It's all they know. We, We get contemptful with our neighbors because we think what 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 rotten people what crazy people they are what what evil people and we somehow think that they should know better but they don't they're just living according to the world view that they have god does not show them contempt He understands the kind of spiritual fog, the spiritual stupor, and and the stupidity uh, that they are walking in. He doesn't look at them and say, you idiots. Rather, he sees them compassionately, as confused, and weary, and helpless, wandering like sheep without a shepherd. When we look at people who have brought trouble into their lives by their own foolishness, we often say things like, well, serves them right. Or we mock them on social media. What kind of imbecile says something like that? When we see people of different political stripe, the party that had been defeated, we just gloat in contempt. And this is all a way of detaching ourselves from them. We distance ourselves from them, partly out of self-righteous pride, and partly because we don't want their unhappiness to be ours. But God doesn't do that. Real compassion, the voluntary attachment of our hearts to others, means the sadness of their condition breaks our hearts as well. It affects us. That is deeply uncomfortable and inconvenient, I know. But it is the character of the compassion of God. God's evident generosity of spirit toward the city of Nineveh could not be a greater indictment on Jonah's ungenerous narrowness. His greatest sin Jonah's was, was namely that he was very inhuman in his attitude toward Nineveh. The character of compassion, a generous God, a God who says they don't know what they're doing. Would you say that with me? They don't know what they're doing. If we, you and I, are acquainted at all with 
the New Testament, it is impossible to read about this generous, compassionate God without remembering Jesus. The compassion of Jesus is the compassion of Almighty God. I'll say that again. The compassion of Jesus is the compassion of Almighty God. God is saying to Jonah, I am weeping and grieving and heartbroken over this city. Why aren't you? If you are my prophet, why don't you have my compassion? Jonah did not weep over the city, but Jesus, the true prophet, did. Jesus was riding into Jerusalem on the last week of his human life here on earth. He knew he would suffer at the hands of the leaders and the mob of this city. But instead of being like Jonah, full of wrath, or absorbed in self-pity, or overflowing with contempt, when he saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Luke's Gospel, chapter 19. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often, Jesus said, I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. On the cross, now, Jesus cried out, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. What a, what a bamboozling statement. Jesus doesn't even wait for the people to acknowledge their wrongdoing. They don't know what they're doing. Jesus doesn't wait for them to, to grovel and, and, and throw themselves on the ground and ask for His forgiveness. He doesn't wait for any of that. Notice that. He forgives them without any of that occurring. We like people to grovel. Well, I'll forgive you. Yeah, I'll forgive you, but we'll, we're going to make you grovel first. We're going to make you get down and eat dirt a little bit first. Because you had it coming. And then we'll forgive you. After you've groveled what we feel is long enough. Jesus says, Father, forgive them. Before None of that. has said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In effect, Jesus is saying, Father, they are torturing and killing me. They are denying and betraying me. But none of them, not even the Pharisees, the religious leaders, really completely understand what they are doing. 
They don't know their right hand from their left. We can only look in wonder and awe on such a heart. Notice he does not say they are not guilty of wrongdoing. They are. That is why they need forgiveness. Yet Jesus is also remembering that they are confused, spiritually blind, clueless, and not really able to recognize the horror of what they are doing. He is a perfect heart. Perfect in generous love and compassion. Not excusing, but not harshly condemning either. He is the weeping God of Jonah in human form. He is the incarnation of God's compassion. The numerous physical healings performed by Jesus to alleviate human suffering are only a hint of the anguish in the heart of God's Son for wounded and broken humanity. His compassion surges from the bowels of His being and operates on a level that escapes human imitation. Jesus resonated with the depths of human sorrow in ways that we can never fully conceive. He became lost with the lost, hungry with the hungry, thirsty with the thirsty. On the cross, He journeyed to the far reaches of loneliness so that He could be lonely and vulnerable with those who are lonely and vulnerable and rob loneliness of its killing power by taking it on Himself. He did then, and He does now. For you, for me, for the world, King Jesus vibrates to the hope and fear the celebrations and desolations of each of us. He is the incarnation of the compassion of the Father. The 15th century mystic Meister Eckhart wrote, You may call God love. You may call God goodness. But the best name for God is compassion. When we speak of Jesus Christ as Emmanuel, God with us. We are saying that the greatest lover in history knows what hurts us. Jesus reveals a God who is not indifferent to human agony. A God who fully embraces the human condition and plunges into the thick of our human struggle. When we consider the human emotions of Jesus in the Gospels, beloved, and those recorded instances that describe His emotions to us, by far the most typical statement of Jesus' emotional life, and Jesus was a, a, a man very engaged 
and connected to his emotions. By far the most typical statement of Jesus' emotional life was the phrase, he was moved with compassion. He was moved with compassion. Would you say it with me? He was moved with compassion. He was literally moved from the depths of his being. In fact, the, the word that's used there in the Greek New Testament for the English phrase, moved with compassion, is, a, is, a, is, is very descriptive. It's far more descriptive than our pallid English moved with compassion. The word is, is derived from a verb which is, is of the heart, the lungs, the bowels, the intestines, the liver, or the entrails. Please spare me any jokes about being moved right now. In the Hebrew sense, these were known to be the viscera of the soul, the seat of compassion, where our strongest human emotions come from because they were said to be our most inward parts, our guts. This then is to say that when Jesus was moved with compassion, his heart was torn open. His gut was wrenched. The most vulnerable part of his being was laid bare. The compassion of Jesus is the compassion of Almighty God. And Jesus says today, beloved, to your heart and to mine, to your heart and mind, don't ever be so foolish as to measure my compassion for you in terms of your compassion for one another. Don't ever be so silly as to compare your thin, pallid, wavering, moody, depending on smooth circumstances, human compassion with mine. For I am God as well as man. When Jesus was moved with compassion, the ground of all being shook. The source of all life trembled, the heart of all love burst open, and the unfathomable depths of the relentless tenderness was laid bare. Your Christian life and mine don't make any sense unless in the depth of our beings we believe that Jesus not only knows what hurts us, but knowing seeks us out Whatever our poverty, whatever our pain, His plea to His people is, come now, wounded, frightened, angry, lonely, empty, and I'll meet you where you live. I'll meet you in the alley, Lily. I'll meet you there. I'll meet you in the cold and I'll love you as you are, not as you should be. Because you're never going to be as you should be. Beloved, do we really believe this? 
with all the wrong turns we've made in our pasts, like Jonah running from God, the mistakes, the moments of selfishness and dishonesty and degraded love, do you really believe that Jesus Christ loves you? Not the person next to you. Not the church. Not the world. But that He loves you. Beyond worthiness and unworthiness. Beyond fidelity and infidelity. That He loves you. In the morning sun and in the evening rain. Without caution. Without regret. Without boundary. Without limit. No matter what's gone down, He can't stop loving you. This is the Jesus of the Gospels. This is the compassion of God that we're seeing in the story of Jonah. His compassion connects Him with us. Our sadness makes Him sad. Our pain brings Him pain. Jesus is the prophet that Jonah should have been. Yet, of course, Jesus is infinitely more than that. Jesus did not merely weep for us. He died for us. Jonah went outside the city hoping to witness its condemnation. But Jesus Christ went outside the city, according to Hebrews 13, to die on a cross to accomplish salvation for all humankind. Here God says that He is grieving over Nineveh, which means He is letting the evil of the city weigh on Him. In some mysterious sense, He is suffering because of its sin. When God became human in Jesus Christ and went to the cross, He not only experienced emotional pain, but every kind of pain in unimaginable dimensions. The agonizing physical pain of the crucifixion included torture and slow asphyxiation and excruciating death. But even beyond that, when Jesus hung on the cross, He underwent the infinite, most unfathomable pain of all. Separation from God and all love, eternal alienation, and the anguishing wages of sin as He became sin for us. The incredible mystery and wonder of His passion and His compassion. He did it all for us, beloved. Out of His unimaginable, limitless compassion for you and for me, for all humankind, for every nation, tribe, tongue, every people group, every ethnicity, every culture, for all creation. The character of His compassion. 